I want to say uh, thank you to Willie Chrisman uh, for challenging us uh, to practice the kingdom in our daily lives. And I do hope uh, that you will uh, consider participating in the 50-50 challenge, uh, as was mentioned just a few moments ago in some of the pictures that you've seen from previ previous years. And uh, whether or not you submit a picture of what you do, that's, that's, that's fine. Um, but very grateful that we have this opportunity to engage our community in this way. And uh, thank you, John, for your prayer as we consider additional shepherds. And as John mentioned, uh, the way to submit those names, uh, I hope you'll take that into consideration. Um, uh, you may have seen reports uh, this past week. Uh, I know I've seen different things come through uh, of what is being called a, a modern-day revival. Uh, on February the 8th, a chapel service was held in Hughes Auditorium at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky. And now, 11 days later, it's still going on. And similar services have begun uh, down the street at Sanford University here in town, also at Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee, also uh, at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. And um, Dr. John Mark Hicks from Lipscomb University wrote a piece this week comparing this moment, uh, similarities and differences, uh, to what is known as the Cane Ridge Revival in 1801, led by Barton W. Stone, not too far from Wilmore, Kentucky. And uh, it was an interesting piece. We don't have time to, uh, to read that today. Um, but the reason that I'm mentioning this, why am I, why am I telling you this, is because that I've become uh, convicted as of late, uh, in particular, that, that God is, is moving, uh, that God is, is stirring the hearts uh, of, of His people. Uh, and in particular, uh, I have been blown away by just the, the way that God is stirring uh, among uh, this group right here, uh, our college-age students. And, and church, I, I'm, I want to encourage us that we, we do everything that we can uh, to support this age, to support the next generation, uh, to pray for them, to pray with them, uh, to, to, to just catch the, the, the vision of the Spirit that is, is moving within them as well. And, and I want to be a church that is, is supportive of, of the next generation. I love seeing uh, our, our kids go around and passing around the envelopes just a few moments ago, them getting involved and getting, uh, you know, their, their hands a little, a little dirty serving. And, and I'm so, so grateful for that. I saw that yesterday at the, uh, at the community food bank that we were serving at, some kids getting involved there as well. Um, and so I just want to say thank you to our, our college aides who have been able to sit in their, their class the past few weeks and just, uh, just to absorb uh, the energy and the, and the passion that's there uh, has been a great gift uh, to me. Um, in the, the next two weeks, I plan to start a, a brand new sermon series on the book of Romans. And I've never preached in 12 years of preaching here. I've never preached through the book of Romans. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, uh, also, you know, there's, there's a reason I haven't preached through the book of Romans, uh, because it's, 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 a tough, it's a tough book. Uh, it just is. Um, but I'm excited. I believe that God has continued to just lead, lead me in my study to that. And so uh, looking forward to that in the next two weeks. And then uh, next week, uh, a few of our shepherds, you've heard us 
sing about shepherds today. You've heard us talk about shepherding. Uh, and next week, a few of our shepherds are just going to share uh, from a shepherd's heart uh, some of our current shepherds. And I know that you'll be blessed uh, as a faith family uh, to hear uh, what they have to say next week. So I hope you'll be here next week for that. Uh, I hope you'll be here this Wednesday night. Uh, for the gathering. Uh, as was mentioned on the video a few moments ago, uh, we're going to be gathering in the gym to, to have uh, it's just a time of fellowship and a meal. And then at 7 o'clock, our, our younger students are going to go and do a service project. And then our older students and adults, uh, we're actually going to come and, and gather in the auditorium. Uh, in many circles, Wednesday, this Wednesday is known as, as Ash Wednesday. Uh, I'm going to be talking just a little bit about that. Um, and, and we're going to be focusing on some time of singing here in the, in the auditorium as well. So I hope 7 o'clock uh, on Wednesday. Wednesday night uh, after 6.30 we eat. I hope you'll be in here 7 o'clock Wednesday night. Uh, and if it goes 11 days, it goes 11 days. Uh, you know, I'm just saying, but uh, grateful for that. Um, growing up, I, I heard sermons from time to time about elders or about uh, shepherds, as we call them today. And I have to be honest, you know, as I was growing up and hearing these sermons, uh, you know, those were often days that young Brett decided to just tune out because I never could quite understand, you know, what, what was the application to my life? You know, how, how did that apply, you know, to me? How was that relevant to me uh, as a young person? Um, and I'm convinced uh, today, I hope one of the, my prayers as I've been preparing uh, this message is that we, uh, we find application uh, regardless of, of what stage of life we're in. Uh, so if, if you're a single adult or if you're a married adult or if you're a senior adult, uh, I, I believe that this message has implications for, for all of us. Uh, whatever stage of life that we find ourselves in, not just those that we call shepherds. As John mentioned a few moments ago, uh, I hope you'll spend some time in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, 1 through 7. Here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Or Titus 1. Six through nine, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must be hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Or lastly, in 1 Peter 5, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. 
In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. This past year, the larger faith community said farewell to who I believe has had the most profound influence on shepherding uh, in the past 30 years. Uh, Dr. Lynn Anderson uh, passed away at the age of 85 uh, this past May. Uh, You'll see uh, him and his wife, Carolyn, uh, on the screen there. And uh, I remember the only time that I I met Dr. Anderson. Uh, He graduated from Harding University, got his doctorate degree from Abilene Christian University, preached in Canada for a few years, and then preached in Abilene for 20 years. And the only time that I, I met Dr. Anderson was at Lipscomb University, who was up there for their lectures one year, and I walked in the cafeteria, uh, where I often found myself when, when I was at Lipscomb, but I walked in the cafeteria, and, and then there was Dr. Anderson just sitting there, and I was like, that's Dr. Anderson. I just started preaching here at Homewood, and I I just read uh, his, his book, They Smell Like Sheep, and uh, ironically enough, this is the book on the screen, ironically enough, I, I read this book while I was on a plane with one of uh, our former shepherds, Butch Ware. And I was reading this book about they, they smell like sheep, that, that, that you know, a shepherd is, is so close to those that he serves that he actually begins to smell like them. And I see Butch sitting back there, and, and, I was, and he may not remember this, but I was on a plane with Butch, and we were actually flying to Mobile uh, to be with a member who had lost a loved one. And I couldn't help but see the irony of, of here I am reading this book about shepherding, and I'm seeing it played out right in front of my eyes. A shepherd going to be with someone who had lost a loved one. So I'm sitting there, and there's Dr. Lynn Anderson there in the cafeteria, and I walk up to him, and I'm fully expecting just to walk up to him and say, hey, Brett Walters, nice to meet you. Have a great day. And I do that. I walk up to him. I say, hey, Brett Walters, nice to meet you. He said, Brett Walters, where are you from? I said, Birmingham, Alabama. He said, well, where did he preach at? I said, Homewood Church. He said, sit right down here and tell me all about it. And we sat there for the half an hour just talking. He acted like he knew me his whole life. And he didn't have to give me that time. He didn't have to give me that attention. Um, but we sat and we talked. Do you know that Dr. Lynn Anderson was known among our tribe as a serial encourager. Now, I'll tell you, that's much better than a serial killer, all right? To be a serial encourager, what if that was what you were known for? What if people said, you know what, that that person is a serial encourager. They encourage everybody around them. And some of the things that that Dr. Anderson talks about in this book, it's an an older book, it's it's, over 20 years old. But some of the things that Dr. Anderson talks about just resonated deeply with me because everything that he he talks about, he he talks about from a a biblical perspective. It's not just pulling things out of the air or I think this is what, no, no, it's, it's it's a biblical look at this idea of shepherding. He says in his book that if we drop the shepherd and flock idea, we would have to tear out about 500 pages in our Bibles. Go through and just, just go through the pages of Scripture in your own time and just see how, how often this metaphor comes up. Now, we may think that it's a lovely metaphor, shepherd, flock, 
fluffy, soft little lambs. But the fact of the matter is that sheep are not the most flattering metaphor in the world. Matter of fact, I I heard from uh, an atheist this past week that said, I refuse to be referred to as a sheep. I will not be referred to as, as a sheep. And, and they had this, sheep had this amazing ability to get lost and wander into dangerous situations. I mean, have you ever seen a, a, a trained sheep at a circus? Anybody? Anyone ever say, come watch my sheep do some tricks? You ever seen a sign in someone's front yard that said, hey, beware of guard sheep? I know, it's funny, isn't it? You know, you, you, don't, you don't hear these kind of things. Why? Because sheep are, are, are a little bit aimless sometimes. But here's, here's the, the point, I think. I don't think the metaphor really exists to suggest that we as human, humans are, are aimless or, or, or not intellectual. I think the metaphor has more to do with the shepherd and the relationship that the sheep has with the shepherd. But it can't be just any shepherd. It has to be a good shepherd. And in John chapter 10, Jesus claims just this, that he is the good shepherd. Look at me in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, This is one of Jesus's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, But to say that he is the good shepherd implies that there are some bad ones. And so in order for us to get the full context of what Jesus is saying, we have to back up a chapter to John John chapter 9 and see what Jesus says in John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, we're exposed to this misguided leadership that the people had in that day. Uh, do you remember in chapter 9, a man born blind who was healed by Jesus? And everybody's excited. Everybody's jumping for joy. But then the Pharisees heard about it, and they asked him, you know, how can you explain this? And he said, I, I don't know. This man, Jesus, must obviously be a prophet. And they did not want to hear that. That's the last thing that they wanted to hear. So they went to his parents, and they thought, well, maybe he wasn't really born blind. And and so now his parents didn't want to talk because the word on the street was that if you publicly support Jesus, that you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. And this was, you know, kind of the social fabric of their society to belong to the synagogue. And so they they did not want to be kicked out of the synagogue. It's like being made a social leper, an outcast from society. So so all they would say, they wouldn't take any stances. The parents wouldn't take any stances. They just say, hey, he's of age, go ask him. All we can tell you is that he was blind at birth. So they go back to this man again. Let's pick up in verse 24, John chapter 9. 
A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know, we know that this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is that I was blind, but I now see. They asked him, what did he do to you? How did he, how did he open up your eyes? He answered, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, now that is remarkable. (laughs) That's remarkable. (laughs) You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Have you ever heard of a shepherd throwing out a sheep? So Jesus found this man. He led him to faith. And the man worshiped Jesus, and Jesus said in verse 39, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Uh, Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So what's the context here? What's what's happening? The context is this. Jesus has just called the leaders of the people blind leaders. In other words, he's saying, you guys are bogus shepherds. Church, the problem of God's people has not been the presence of wolves. The problem for God's people has been the absence of shepherds. If you have good shepherds, the wolves aren't problems. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And here's the the preeminent quality for a shepherd. One of the things that Dr. Lynn Anderson says in his book, I don't have this on the screen, but one of the things that he says is, is as he looks at those passages that we we looked at earlier from Timothy and Titus and Peter. He says that, that Paul was kind of was following this Greek thought of the day, that these lists are not so much qualifications as they are qualities. That's why the lists don't match up, that these are the, the qualities of a, a shepherd. And there's always people willing to lead, there's always people willing to, to, to get their away and their agendas fulfilled, but there are a few that are willing to to lay down their life. The good shepherd, what? Lays down his life for the sheep. I find it curious uh, that the letter to the Philippians is the only letter that we find in the New Testament that specifically addresses the overseers 
and the diakonos, the ministry leaders, the deacons. Yes, it's addressed to the church, and and most every other letter we see to the church of, to the church of. But Paul, when he's writing to the church in Philippi, he specifically addresses these overseers in Philippians 1.1. And we don't often refer to Paul's letter to the Philippians when we consider the qualities of an overseer or a shepherd. Yet there's this radical call in Philippi to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And I think that we desperately need to hear that message in Birmingham, Alabama. Social historian Joseph Hellerman writes that Christians in Philippi were to pattern their lives not after the values of Rome, but after a Messiah who willingly exchanged his immeasurably exalted status for the shame of a crucified slave all for the benefit of rebellious human beings whom he had created. Paul intended the example of Jesus to indelibly mark the ways in which power and authority were used in the Christian community at Philippi. In other words, Rome had a a leadership model that emphasized and exerted power. Corpus honorum. The sequential order of public offices. Philippi was was a mini Rome. It's an honor-shame culture. An individual's behavior is judged based on what brought honor or shame to the social group. So think back to Acts chapter 16. And we read about the, the birth of the church in Philippi. We read about the Philippian jailer who did what? When Paul and Silas seemingly escaped from prison, what did the Philippian jailer do? Took his sword and was real willing, ready to kill himself. Until Paul and Silas said, whoa, 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 we're here, we're here. But why was he so quick to kill himself? This is what happens in honor-shame culture. Because he, he was about to bring dishonor to, his, to the people of Rome for letting Paul and Silas escape. And they said, no, 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 we're here. We're here. Don't, don't do that. A few verses later, the Philippian jailer and his household are all baptized into Christ because he witnessed a different culture. He witnessed God's economy on display. And when you witness God's economy on display, you are transformed by that display. You are changed by His work in your life. The leadership model was cursus honorum. It's climbing the ladder at its finest. It's this idea of positional authority, and it began making its way into the church. And this, this can happen in the church, that we, we view people as, as ranks. <laughs> you have members, you have small group leaders, then you have, you know, ministry staff, and then you have, you know, ministry leaders, and then you have shepherds, and, and we, we began to view this as ranks. And yes, God ordered the family, God ordered this world in a certain way, but when we began to, to see other people as stepping stones to get above, then we're completely missing the way of Jesus. We're missing the point. Archaeologists have found several second century tombstones of local Christians, presumably boasting about the offices that they had held. 
What, what place does that have in the church? And Paul comes along in the letter to the Philippians and turns curses on a room completely upside down, flips it on its head completely. He's not just talking to leadership, but he is talking to leadership. He's talking to the church, and he, he flips it completely upside down. In Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. This was considered a hymn in that day. Not looking to your own interests, but, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your own relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited, something to be grasped at. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Holy Spirit intends Paul's teaching to transform our understanding of leadership in our churches today. A self-emptying vision, a laying down of one's self. The world teaches us to look for those climbing the ladder to places of honor. Paul reminds us that in God's economy, we look not to our own interests. And so, as shepherds, as ministers, you do realize that we are in Christ, we are all ministers. We've received a ministry of reconciliation. It's the, the priesthood of all believers that Peter would talk about. Like th this is giving us a better picture of what the church is intended to be, and our call is to, to have the same mindset as Christ. You want to you know who to raise up as leaders? Look for those among you who are lowering themselves to serve, those who are willing to live the cross-shaped life. It's one of the reasons that I love our auditorium. Yes, it's a building. I realize that a tornado could come and, and wipe this place away overnight. I'm not, I'm not asking for that. I'm just realizing that it's a building. But, but one of the things that I'm reminded of every time I step into this place is the cross-shaped nature of this room that we are, are literally inside a cross-shaped structure. And it's this reminder to me every time that I come in here, every time that I preach, every time that, that I'm before you, every, it's this reminder that, that my, my call is to, to follow Jesus in this cross-shaped way, to pick up my cross, to follow Him daily. So, in John 9, we, we see the bogus shepherds. And in John 10, we see Jesus. And what does He say? John 10, this may or may not be on the screen, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks, the flock scatters. The man runs away because he's a hired hand, cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Our word good doesn't really quite catch the full meaning of the word that John is, is saying when he says good shepherd. When we think good, we think some uh, moralistic kind of good. That, that's what our minds immediately go to. This is, this is not exactly what John is saying. That that word can also be translated as beautiful. And it's not this that Jesus was, you know, physically attractive. We read in Isaiah that that wasn't the case. No, no, no. It, it, it's, it's this idea that there's this attractiveness to the way that he is shepherding to what he was doing. And when he calls, people want to come. When they realize he's laid down his life for them, they want even more of that. And the point of calling Jesus the good shepherd is to emphasize this this strange, compelling power of his love. Henry Nouwen asked the question, "What, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. Jesus asked, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? A few uh, practical takeaways this morning. Number one is, is how will you discern God's voice from all other voices that buy for your attention this week? Uh, One thing about Palestinian shepherds was their intimate familiarity with their sheep. The shepherd would give each one of his sheep a name, and they they would hear his voice, and they would respond. Friends, I want to remind you this morning that you're just, you're not just a number in heaven, that you're intimately known. Remember in John chapter 20, Jesus raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene has gone to the tomb. She doesn't know what's happened. The tomb's empty. She's distraught, and she sees a man and thinks that it's a gardener. And the man says, why are you crying? And she says, sir, if if you've taken his body, tell me where you've put him. And then what does the man do? He just simply says her name, Mary. And immediately she knew. Immediately she knew this was the shepherd. He says, I know my sheep. He knows your tendencies. He knows your passions. He knows your hurts. He knows your flaws. And the amazing thing is, is that after he knows everything about you, he still calls you. In fact, the very ones that a lot of shepherds would throw out, Jesus goes after. You know people that have been thrown out because of 
uh, socioeconomic status. You know people who have been thrown out because of a divorce. You know people who have been thrown out because of an addiction or a drug problem. People who have been thrown out because they feel like they're not worthy. And some of us in this room right now to need to accept that Jesus accepted us. And some of us just need to let God love us. And that's what the name Good Shepherd means. Second question is this, is how are you pointing those you shepherd to the Good Shepherd? Moms and dads, how are you shepherding your families? You may say, well, I don't have a family. Well, how are you shepherding those that God has placed in your midst? Uh, I was reminded yesterday, as I was mentioned a few moments ago, seeing some of our kids uh, serve at the Jonesboro Food Pantry. I remember uh, one of our members who went to be with the Lord a couple years ago, Charlie Grantham. I remember Charlie telling me multiple times, because he worked here on staff for four years, hey, get, get your children involved in serving. Get them, get them involved. I heard Bill Spate say this yesterday. Get your children involved. Come alongside. Hey, get, get on the path with me. Come on, come on. Let's, let's go. Let's go. Church, we need a generation that sees an older generation saying, let's go. <laughs> we need a church that needs to, needs to see a younger generation that's saying, hey, let's go. <laughs> we need to be a church of generational generosity. Jesus describes two scenes in John 10 that would have been very familiar to his readers, but not so much to us. The, the first five verses, he describes the big pen downtown, and all the sheep are there. The watchman opens the gate, shepherd calls the sheep, and they listen to his voice, and they come out. And he would typically lead them then into the mountains, and they go up to the mountains. He decides to spend the night up there, and this is verses 6 through 10. It's a different scene where he builds a fold or a pen just for his sheep, and the sheep are nervous because they're out vulnerable to the predators, but the shepherd stands or lays in front of the gate. This is a modern-day picture of what, what that may look like. And so nothing can go in or, or come out without going through the shepherd. So when the sheep see that protection, there's a peace that comes over the sheep. The presence of the shepherd gives the sheep the one thing that the sheep can't have on his own, a sense of security. John 10, 27 through 29, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. When will we, get this, when will we have security? When will we feel like we have it all? It's when we become convinced that nothing can get us without going through the shepherd. And that's exactly why Calvary exists. I don't know about you, but I'll eat and drink to that. So if you will, pull out your communion packets as we eat the bread and drink the cup this morning. Let's pray.
Father and our God, the, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall want for nothing. Help us to believe those words and live them this week. As we eat the bread, we remember the sacrifice and the resurrected body that gives us eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. The body of Christ given for you. Let's pray for the cup. Father, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup. overflows. As we drink the cup, we remember the blood that frees us and assures us that no one can snatch us out of the hand of our Savior. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. The blood of Christ given for you. so in the foyer or do so 
online. Uh, I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up and let's say a word of prayer before we sing our song of invitation. So Father and God, we again thank you for the gifts of this day. Thank you for your word that reminds us who you are and whose we are. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Jesus we pray. Amen.